0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Rich Vogel.
0: Hi, and I'm Adam Doan. Uh, we're both birth certified neurophysiologists from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
1: And we're also co-chairs of the NAS section on intraoperative neurophysiological monitoring.
0: This podcast series is about neuromonitoring and covers a wide range of educational topics aimed at optimizing patient care, decreasing cost, or maximizing OR efficiency.
1: Today we're going to talk about how many surgeries are monitored in the U.S. each year, how many of those surgeries are spine, whether utilization is increasing or decreasing, what major trends we're seeing. And uh, what does the crystal ball tell us about the future of neuromonitoring? Let's start with the volume of surgeries monitored. Adam, what resources are available to estimate number of cases monitored in the US? So
0: one of the the obvious ones that comes to mind is some of the larger national data sets, such as the national inpatient uh, sample. So this uses ICD codes, it captures a, a smaller percentage, uh, usually in patients, um, when they're coded by the, the DRG with a primary reason for hospitalization uh, included. So this sort of relies on, on whether or not IONM is actually coded for these procedures, um, probably more true for the in-house programs and not necessarily true for the outsource programs. Uh, the outsource companies that that serve the, the um, hospitals and surgery centers. So, there, there was a recent paper by uh, John Nay and David, um, uh, David VanderGhost that identified neuromonitoring in just over 110,000 procedures per year. Um, in that year alone, I think some of the larger neuromonitoring companies probably monitor that many cases just by themselves. That that looks at all matra cases, not just spine, and you know NASA is obviously a spine society, so we we can probably um, we can probably. Uh, Summarize that those are under sampled ways of, of looking at uh, the total volume that, that's out there. And what I, I think in a couple of months we are actually going to uh, interview Dr. Nay, so he can probably elaborate on uh, that methodology at that time.
1: Um, Rich, what else? What else is available? So I think another common one is the administrative claims databases, right? And, and they um, one of the issues that we think about with them is that they tend to capture a percentage of the actual cases monitored because what the data reflect in those databases um, is the um, number of cases that were actually reimbursed for neuromonitoring. Um, and one, one uh, common observation that we know in, in the neuromonitoring field is that just because you do the work doesn't mean you get paid. Uh, there's a fair amount of cases that, that get submitted for reimbursement but don't get reimbursed. So, an example of how this can um, uh, can can provide us with incorrect information is a recent series of papers that looked at neuromonitoring monitoring uh, using the Pearl Diver database to estimate utilization in a variety of surgeries. Now, Pearl Diver is a uh, it houses Humana claims and it only reports. Um, Cases that were actually paid by the insurance company for neural monitoring, which is is often less than we think. So, um, so just as an example of how incorrect those data can be, um, one paper used that database and identified 2,500 cases that were ACDFs that were monitored over the course of, I think it was an eight-year span. 2,500 cases. If you look at just one large neuromonitoring company in the United States, of which there are several, they typically monitor about 20,000 ACDFs a year. So Pearl Diver found 2,500 over the course of eight years. Uh, one company would typically monitor about 25,000, sorry, uh, 20,000 cases. So it just goes to show how inaccurate that could be. Um, Adam, I know we also have market research reports. What comes out of those?
0: Uh, probably not, nothing overly accurate or good, unfortunately. Yeah, because we, we've we looked at several of those over the years, and I think we've mostly concluded that they don't really provide that that much good information. Um, sometimes they they rely on questionable sources to get some of that material. I think there's a lot less like uh, probably money, time, research that goes into neural monitoring market reports compared to some of like the the the, the larger revenue type companies like a medical device company. Um, sometimes there's crossover with EEG and evoked potential like laboratory work as well and sometimes they even include companies that you know either are no longer in existence because of acquisition or or other you know variables as well so they're, they're probably not the best uh source of material unfortunately
1: yeah and i guess the last source that we have and we'll, we'll actually come to a number here is um we can look at at, at outsource monitoring and what we know about that um, you know uh, outsource neuro monitoring as opposed to that which is done kind of academically in-house, we think represents approximately two-thirds of all neuro monitoring in the United States. And we can look at what we know about the two largest companies out there who we know have approximately a 25% market share and collectively monitor approximately 200,000 cases a year. Um, so, we can estimate based on the market share and what they monitor that the total number of cases monitored in the United States is probably around 800,000 cases each year. And we also know from a variety of outsourced neuromonitoring companies, not just the largest one, that it tends to be the case that they monitor about 80% spine. So we can take that 800,000 cases and we can uh, then make the educated guess that 80% of that or 650,000 spine surgeries is what gets monitored in the United States each year. At the end of the day, like I said, it's an educated guess and there's not one uh, really good way to estimate the number of cases that are involved uh, with monitoring. So Adam, um, do we think that the number of cases monitored each year is going up or going down?
0: uh so i i think it depends on who you ask but for if if um i think you there's literature that basically says it's doing both i think there's more literature that says it's increasing than it says that it's it's decreasing uh one of the things to keep in mind is if outsource neuromonitoring companies don't always get coded um, like in as part of the the DRG, uh, maybe that's uh, a reflection of an increased aware, awareness of the inclusion. So is the increase secondary to more sophistication surrounding that aspect, or is it actually uh, increasing? I think the the easiest answer is that a lot of this is regional based. So you know, we you know we work for companies that usually have a pretty broad geographic footprint and we see certain areas where it seems to be going up certain areas where it's going down and certain areas where it's plateaued often you know driven by qualified you know the availability of qualified people machines um you know regional trends from the the surgeon's perspective and so on same is true if you look at this outside of America as well. So even if we're slightly increasing, or even maybe a little bit plateaued domestically, I think the, if there's definitely an increase internationally. And I know a lot of the NAS audience is, um, are, are from countries that aren't United States where neuromonitoring probably is increasing. So, um, you know, to bring it back to America, I, I think we we basically follow the trends of surgery. So if more surgeries, spine surgeries are getting done, it seems like we would almost piggyback, you know, on that. So maybe the baby boomers drive some of that, that increase uh, from a, a neuromonitoring perspective as well. Uh, so Rich, what kind of trends are we seeing on how monitoring is
1: used in spine surgery? So two major trends come to mind um, the first one is that we're seeing a lot of um, lumbar surgeries, um, um, or let me say this a different way. We're seeing motor evoke potentials used to evaluate nerve root function, and that's particularly true in lumbar surgeries. Uh, over the past couple of years, there's been at least 10 papers that have been published demonstrating the utility of, of motors. In, in lumbar surgery, particularly for detecting and obviating foot drop. And these are analogous to what we saw 10 years ago when some of the papers came out demonstrating the utility for detecting C5 palsy uh, by monitoring motors from the deltoid. So, um, based on this high quality research that has come out over the past um, two years, we're seeing a big uptake in the utility of monitoring uh, um, motors for, for nerve root function, particularly in lumbar surgery. And then I think the other thing is, um, you know, one of the questions that we get a lot is, you know, is there a standard? What does everybody else do? And usually we, we sort of say, well, there isn't a standard. Everybody does things a little bit differently. It's the heterogeneity of neuromonitoring. But one of the things that we are seeing is in deformity surgery, um, really, thanks to uh, the, the work outside of the neurophysiology community by, um by people like uh, Dr. Larry Lanky and others who are really trying to um, create some sort of standardization in the way we approach monitoring. So so we, we're definitely seeing uh, multimodality monitoring uh, um, in in deformity surgery, where you're using motor evoked potentials, not just for monitoring spinal cord, but also for monitoring nerve roots. You're seeing SSCPs, you're seeing EMGs, um, pedicle screw stimulation, all of these things are being done in terms of a, a, a comprehensive approach to monitoring these procedures, those are the two major trends that I see right now, and 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 those are, um, in I, I think they're increasing over time. Um, those are the clinical trends, um, Adam. I know that we, you and I, often talk about what other trends we're seeing in the profession. What what comes to mind for you? Um, yeah, a
0: few things come to mind. One of them is. Uh, right now, like the majority of neural monitoring in America is outsourced. It's not run through in-house programs like at you know some of the the larger academic centers. Uh, that's actually increasing. You know, it's easier for an outsourced company to drive some of the efficiencies to provide. You know staffing with uh, because they work at more than one hospital usually there's a, a pool of clinicians in the area so it, it's a little bit easier logistically to manage as an outsourced company which is part of the reason why that's increasing um, there's a desire by the neuromonitoring community to negotiate in their network contracts a, a large portion of the profession is uh, out of network, that's not always because we want to be out of network. A lot of that is educating the various payers as to who we are, what we do and why we're different from the the pool of you know, say neurologists that they already have. Maybe they want to close their pool and we have to explain why we're different, and sometimes that takes you know more than a year, sometimes several years before we actually cross the finish line. but I think that's the desire. Uh, I think that one of the trends is more engaging with surgeons. We've always like lived in our, in our own bubble and, you know, just like we're here now as a, a part of NAS, trying to be a part of the team. There's huge drives for teamwork and quality and patient safety and, um, you know, that, that benefits us as well. We want to be a part of the team. We want to engage and, you know, we want to be, be able to, to work as a, a collective team um i think last but not least the data and analytics you know as the companies get bigger you mentioned that some of the companies do monitor you know around uh, 100,000 cases a year um being able to use that data to look at where where are we being um uh where do we drive value uh you know we sometimes have like like you said if we have 20,000 ecdfs in our in our bank to analyze you know let's let's use that let's work with the the um the surgeons to see like what where you know there is utility and be, be able to you know drive, drive that i think that one of the the challenges is also because the majority of the profession is outsourced we all we don't always have like good longitudinal outcomes you know we're sort of based we're we're limited to how the patient wakes up and that's only you know obviously part of the, the picture so you know the, as as much as that can be a, a pro to have uh, a large data set it's also a con that you know we we don't always have good access to the electronic health records or you know longer term follow-ups um anything else rich what about you know the the, the future where, where are we going
1: yeah, so that's a good place to end, right? Um, where are we going in the future? I think um, probably the, the biggest things that are going to come out of the future of neuromonitoring are more automation and, and predictive analytics. Um, I, I can see us getting to a place at some point in the future where um, you've got the, you know, a monitoring system that has information fed into it about the patient. Um, whether it's aspects of their medical history, or it's real-time information about um, about vitals and anesthetics and things like that, um, and then it's it's running tests on the nervous system, um, like like a motor evoked potential, and and instantaneously based on all of those factors and what it knows about the patient and its ability to sort of um, uh, Um, you know, rapidly learn about this patient, uh, it can give you an immediate um, probability of post-operative paralysis um, in real time. Um, That's the kind of thing that I see uh, would would be kind of the the holy grail of neuromonitoring, especially for a surgeon, you don't have to wait around for information, right? You just, you run a motor and you get instantaneously um, patient-specific information um, that's, that's, um, that's, that's fed from that system. So uh, we could probably talk about automation in the future to the cows come home, but that's that's certainly the, the main thing that comes to mind in terms of neuromonitoring in the future. Um, anything else to tackle under that, Adam?
0: No, I, I think like you said, that's a, a good place to wrap up on. So
1: uh, thank, thank you. Yep, thanks for listening.